Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the case of Jeffrey Epstein and the challenges that it raises for journalism. So even before Epstein's arrest and then apparent suicide in a jail cell in Manhattan, there's been a ton of unanswered questions about who this guy is, what the nature of his relationship was with a bunch of really rich and really powerful people, the extent of this sex trafficking and prostitution uh, ring that he was alleged to have run, the source of his money, which was apparently enormous, so much we don't know about, despite some terrific reporting from the Miami Herald and other news organizations, as well as investigations by law enforcement that were continuing even to his death. Then his death kicked it all up again, and some some crazy speculation even by reporters from reputable, well-known news outlets about whether he actually died by his own hand, whether somebody else was involved, why the jails seemed to be so incompetent. So all of that has sort of raised a lot of really interesting questions about how something like this should be covered. The mystery around him, again, is despite the fact that he's been in the news for a decade at least or more, and there's still so much we don't know. One of the few journalists who has spent time with him in the last year, not a lot of time, but some time, is Jim Stewart, a business columnist for the New York Times. Jim's here. Welcome. All right. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you very much for coming in. So before we get to your this meeting you had with him, which you wrote about in a piece for the Times, just tell me about your perception of how you know what what was who was Epstein in New York in New York sort of business circles how much do people know about him how much do they care about him how much was he on your radar well i've been covering business topics for decades now and i i cover the M&A era the private equity boom hedge funds i mean i kind of thought i knew everybody you know who was anybody in wall street honestly i never heard of the guy mm-hmm. um, i knew nothing about him mm-hmm. until he became notorious by pleading guilty to sex crimes in Florida, and even then, honestly, I didn't I didn't pay much uh, that much attention. He just he he didn't figure in any of the circles that I wrote about. Right, which is to your credit. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> so, was the first time that you thought about approaching him as a potential source for a story last year? Yes, almost exactly a year ago. And that you you wrote in the Times that you were looking into Tesla and Elon Musk. What was the tie between? Musk and Epstein that you were interested in? Well, maybe people recall that, again, just about a year ago, Elon Musk tweeted that he was going to take Tesla private at $420 a share. Well, that set off a frenzy in the stock market. Oh, and he added financing secured in his tweet. That set off a frenzy of buying. The stock went way up. And then people were saying, well, wait a minute. You don't announce a takeover bid in a tweet. Where did this come from? You know, where are the law firms? Where are the investment banks? Where's the due diligence? Where's the financing source? And it quick, quickly became apparent to me and many others that this was just something that Musk seems to have tweeted on some kind of a whim. And it really raised questions not only about that particular tweet and whether there really was a takeover bid, which it turned out there was not, but there were many calls at this point that Musk should not be both CEO and chairman right. and that they should get a new chairman, and they should get more independent board members to monitor his behavior. I heard from various sources, a colleague of mine at the Times did as well, that this guy Jeffrey Epstein was out acting on behalf of Musk to recruit board members. And of course, I wondered, 
why would Musk, if this is true, be using a registered sex offender to recruit new members to the board? So even though you didn't know a lot about Epstein, you knew you knew in the back of your mind that there had been this sex case oh, yes. involved. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Definitely. So so you reached out to him and said, "I want to talk to you about right. Musk," and he said, "Come on over." He said, "Come over to my house." Okay. And you, at the time, I think he had already served jail time in Florida, um, yes. but the case in New York hadn't been hadn't been kicked up yet. So no, there was no there was no pending litigation. criminal case against right. him. He had, I believe, he he was arrested in two thousand six. He pleaded guilty in two thousand eight. He got out of jail, or he did his, if you can call it jail, because he was you know twelve hours a day he was in his office. I mean, all of that's very controversial. I don't remember exactly when he got out, but he was had been out of jail for some time. And he had been, I don't know if I knew this, but I, I now do, that he had been trying to rehabilitate himself somewhat. Mm-hmm. He was showing up at some fancy dinner parties. He was giving parties. He was cultivating high rollers, mm-hmm. scientists, prominent people, some journalists. So you, and you made this clear in your piece, I mean, you you weren't really there to talk to him about any of that. You no. really wanted to talk to him about Musk and Tesla and what he was doing for for uh, for Tesla. Yeah, this was just garden variety reporting from my uh, standpoint. All right. So you I mean, sh- I frankly started becoming more interested in him as I got there and the interview proceeded. But nevertheless, when I got there, I just thought, well, he's just another source in the right. story. Right. So you get there, you go and, and you go to this house that looks like an embassy, which you wrote about. And then you're you're greeted at the door by who? Well, you know, I've, I've been to many billionaire houses, and they usually have something like a butler who answers the door. It's usually a distinguished-looking older man. The door opened, and this young woman, very attractive young woman, blonde, was standing there. And I, my first question, well, am I at the right house here? You know, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> who are you? But she... You know, she said, oh, hello. I said, I'm, J- I'm Jim- James Stewart. And she said, oh, yes, we're expecting you. Come on in. And so she did serve the function as a kind of hostess, I guess you would say. And you guessed she was maybe 20. That was your guess? Well, maybe. You know, I I mean, frankly, I didn't think she was 16. I I mean, I thought she was young, yeah. but I, I wasn't thinking, oh, are, are we dealing with a, is this appropriate? I, I mean, I, I was frankly sort of surprised. If I had to guess, I would say, you know, 19, 20, 21, something like that. But I, I readily acknowledge that I'm not that good anymore of telling how somebody is, but, how but, old someone is. But, but the point was that you did have a thought when, you, when she opened the door, like, huh, that's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, it's interesting considering that I'm a reporter for the New York Times that this is who greets me. Well, yeah. I mean, I knew the guy was had pleaded guilty to, to having you know some kind of offense involving underage women. He's a registered sex offender, and you know, a beautiful young woman opens the door. I, you know, I was kind of taken aback by that. Yeah, I mean, look, if it was me, I would I would not have had a young woman at the door right. as to make the first impression for somebody coming there. Right. And then you you write in the piece about the sort of lavishness of the space and about his own. Affect. What I thought was so intriguing, though, was his sort of eagerness to keep going back to the subject of his earlier legal problems, especially, I mean, going back to the subject of, frankly, of, of sex with younger women, right? Even though you kept right. wanting to talk to him about Elon Musk. That's correct. I, I, I guess at the time, what I thought he was doing was what should I say, maybe kind of rapport building. You know, journalists, a lot of times, you know, you kind of shoot the breeze for a few minutes about 
this or that or maybe Yeah, but you do it about the weather. Yeah, I know, like the weather or <laughs> sports or, well, oh, did you, you grew up in Illinois or, you know, <laughs> some pleasantry like that. But, I mean, it was kind of the elephant in the room. I, you know, I knew... You know, I knew he was a fairly notorious character. Although, again, I, it was I was indifferent. I was there to find out what, if anything, he knew about the Musk situation. And it, I guess it was relevant in the sense that if he was working for Musk, had had it become an issue at any point that he is has shall we say a checkered past. But it, you know, we never got to that that level. But I I, I thought it was like he was kind of trying to um, kind of get it out in the open and get it over with, and maybe. I, again, I'm thinking back on it now. Was he testing me a little bit to see how did I react? Like, did I act shocked? Was I angry about? It? Did I argue with him? Yeah. None of which I did. I, you know, again, as a journalist, I'm not there to argue about irrelevant subjects to the interview. I was there to find out, you know, what he knew about this transaction. I forgot the adjective used in the piece, but something along. You thought he was charming, or yeah, I, yeah he had a kind of. He's got a, a magnet. He had a magnetism about him. Um, it was pretty striking. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know how to put it in words exactly, but you know, he said he does a lot of yoga. Uh, I think like a yoga term maybe is like, do you have an aura or something? He, he was very appealing. It was a war- He was very warm. He was friendly. And and you know, frankly, the talking about even though I didn't agree with a lot of what he was saying, but his willingness to sort of address that was somewhat disarming. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like he pretended it didn't happen. Yeah. What were the ground rules going in on this? Um, Did you, in your your email conversation before you showed up at the house, did he say, I want this to be on background? Or how did, or did you talk about that once you got there? How did that play out? I I was looking back at my notes. I, the very first thing I had was like background, can use, but no attribution. I don't remember if we must have discussed that on the phone. There was nothing in writing about it, uh-huh. but I believe he said, "Could this be on background on the phone before I went over there?" And I said, "Yes." Did he seem pretty savvy about dealing with reporters and how reporters work and what they're looking for? Yeah, I think so. So you went and had this conversation, and frankly, it sounded like reading from your piece, you didn't have a lot that was very interesting to say about Tesla. What was not disarming about him, and again, as a journalist, I assess people all of this this all the time, is I thought he was slippery and evasive. Um, I don't like dealing with people like that as a source. It's like it takes too much effort to try to, you know, s- you know, separate the wheat from the chaff. Like what's true, what isn't true, what's kind of true, what might be true. He could, he could talk in circles in a way that didn't really go anywhere. And it wasn't something that I could explicitly say was a lie. Like I said, I, I hear you have you have an email from Musk, you know, in, in empowering you to do this work, because that's what I'd heard. And then he said, well, actually, the email is not from Musk. It's from someone very close to him. I said, oh, okay, so who's that? So, well, I can't, I can't tell you. That's a confidence. You know, so it's, it's the, the, the facts are always kind of shifting a little bit. Then I said, well, would you go, would you ask that person if you could if I could talk to them on background. He said, yeah, I'll do that. Then he, then the next day he said, no, he doesn't want to be identified. I don't think he went and asked the guy. I don't know. You do know, you think there even was such a person? I do. Mm-hmm. Do, you, How, do you have a theory on who it is? It would be pure speculation. Yeah. I mean, I think someone commissioned him to do it. I do. I, he said he was collecting names and making some approaches to people. And I know that's true. Yeah. And I don't think he just would totally freelance that. But I, Musk, by the way, I believe Musk, he said he had 
absolutely did not commission him to do this. He didn't want him to do it. He didn't want to have anything to do with him. He doesn't like the guy. He's appalled by him. I believe all those things. I do think somebody approached him. How close was that person really to Musk? Mm-hmm. I suspect not very close. Right. You went back to the Times, and I assume that there's nothing to use here for your Musk reporting because he didn't really tell you anything, right? Well, there was there was nothing per se to be used, and but there were there were there were what I would maybe call leads, mm-hmm. you know, that that I did follow up on. And then, for some reason, I just thought this was so bizarre and interesting. He later, like, invited you over for yes. what, what was it? There, when was a when well, was I would a say dinner it was about with Woody Allen? A week later, he called out of the blue. By the way, none of this was on back. There was no conditions put on any of these uh-huh. conversations. He said, uh, "Would I join it for dinner that Saturday night?" And by the way, it was a Friday, so it was the <laughs> next day. Yeah, it wasn't a lot of notice. He said, would I join him and Woody Allen for dinner the next night? Uh-huh. And I I couldn't do that anyway, But because I, I was not in town that weekend. But um, w- would, if, you, would you have if you hadn't been out of town? I doubt it. Because you, you, you found him creepy. I mean, I, like I said, I found him charming, but I found him useless as a source. As a source. And therefore, I think it's highly unlikely I would have gone back to what would be considered a social event with him. I mean, I will sometimes have dinner or lunch or mm. coffee with someone without any specific story because I guess I'd call it source cultivation. But only people, I believe, are either they? are or had the potential to right. be good sources. I never thought he'd be a good source. So I don't think I would have gone. But anyway, I couldn't go. But I thought it was interesting that it wasn't enough for him to just say, will you come have dinner with me? He had to embellish it with a celebrity who was also going to be there. Did you confirm that Woody Allen did actually have that dinner? I reached out to Woody Allen's spokesperson. I never heard back. Okay. So I don't know if he did or not. His, but pic- he, his picture, His right? picture's there. And yeah. he, he spoke a fair amount about being close to Woody Allen and how they did a lot of things together. Right. They live close by, doesn't I guess. I don't know. I don't. Um, and then so what was the other time, the other... I think it was a few weeks later he called and invited me to dinner. I think he gave me more notice this time, but he said the author Michael Wolff and Steve Bannon, the Trump advisor, were going to be at dinner. Would I like to join them? I had several thoughts there, which was I thought Wolff and Bannon were, you know, at odds, which I guess now we know they weren't. But after Fire and Fury, I thought, oh, they have some kind of falling out. I said, oh, that's interesting. They're having dinner together with Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) And um, there, there I didn't. Seriously, I wasn't going to go. And then he talked to you about uh, about writing his book or writing a book. About yes, him. that was the most surprising because a fair amount of time went by after that, and he called me and asked if I would write his. I think he said biography. I it never got to the point of like was it some kind of authorized? I assume it was going to be you know an authorized mm-hmm. work, which of course I was never going to do that. But I was working on another book anyway, so it was easy to say no. But he sounded, it sounded like he really wanted me to do that. And you thought, you wrote that you thought he just, as much as anything, wanted companionship. Yeah. You know, he came across as as lonely, mm-hmm. as isolated, not just because of his uh, notorious status, but his wealth. I mean, I've known quite a few billionaires and... I'm not a billionaire by any stretch of the imagination, but I, one reason I don't think I'd like to be is that I find quite a few of them are isolated. You know, mm-hmm. they're, somebody's always trying to get money out of them. Yeah, yeah. And also, I, I was just listening. You know, I wasn't criticizing him or judging him. 
he sounded kind of wistful, like he really wanted me to do it. Do you know if that book ever went anywhere? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I, I mean, I did he ask other people to do it? I, I don't know. I never heard anything more about it. So let's talk about the discussion to run the details of this after he died. I assume that that was what triggered it, or was there also a discussion in, even before that, once once he got arrested, about using some of this material, even though it was on background, or not? Uh, well, the one one discussion I remember having, so I, after I finished that interview and did the Musk work, I was still thinking about uh, Epstein, and the, the the main question in my mind was, he's a registered sex offender, and yet he's surrounded by all of these very, you know, eminent, prominent people who've shown me all these photographs there. And so my question was, what is it? You know, what explains the willingness of all these people to keep hanging out with him, to sort of help rehabilitate his position in society? He's going to fancy parties, screenings, you know, they see guest lists, and, you know, they're very prominent people on, on the list. And that idea intrigued me. And I think I talked to my editor a little bit about maybe doing something on it. But it just didn't, you know, there were a zillion other things going on. It never happened. Well, it, it, then when he got rearrested, I got involved in the story because I knew the guy somewhat, and I was very intrigued by all the questions that you raised at the beginning of the interview. So I started working on that. It never occurred to me that I would be in a position to use anything from that. And nobody else at the time said, hey, why don't, okay, can you use any of that stuff? Nobody, nobody no. Else. No, that never came up. So how was the decision made to use the on background material once he died? Well, I heard Saturday morning that he died, and, you know, I guess had a, a range of different reactions to that. But uh, thinking about it fairly quickly, it occurred to me that that was a material change in the on the basis of the agreement. And um, my sort of gut feeling was that it probably obviated the agreement. I didn't know for sure, but I started thinking, oh, maybe there's a story uh, to be done there. Did you, I mean, by the way, I agreed with your decision for whatever that's worth. Um, was there, did, 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 was this something that the Times Council got involved with? Uh, was it a legal question as well as an editorial question? I, yeah, I mean, I, I went to law school. I'm, I'm a member of the bar that don't practice law. So I did a, my, a little work of my own on the sort of the legal issue. Because again, I, I remembered in contracts law that, and this is roughly analogous, I guess, to a contract as an agreement, that the death of a party, if it's a personal services contract, doesn't always but frequently does terminate the contract. That's kind of all I really remembered about it. And I did a little research on that. And like many things in the law, courts decide on a case-by-case basis, and it's one reason why in many contracts there is a explicit provision that covers mm-hmm. the death of one of the parties. So I, I was pretty convinced right away there was no real legal restraint on this. But but I did say, you know, look, I you know I want to run this up the flagpole here, get guidance before I do much. But I they, I was basically told, oh, why don't you just go ahead and write the column, and then we'll yeah let's see what's let's see what's there, let's see what you've got, let's see how newsworthy it is. I think it makes a lot of sense. So I just wrote it. Again, this column was not about the nuts and bolts of my interview about Musk. And, and the only part I really put in there was to explain why I was there. Yeah. Kind of that. It was about him. First of all, let me just say, this was completely unprecedented in my decades as a reporter. I didn't take the decision lightly by any means, but well, I've never I... been in a situation where I had an a, a agreement of 
a background with a source who then committed suicide. And then the material was newsworthy. It's interesting that you, and even when you're in all your time at the journal, when you were editing page one stories, that you never you, you never heard of this happening to anybody else? No, I've never heard of this happening. I couldn't find any precedents either doing my research. Now, interestingly, I have had the experience where a subject or source threatened to commit suicide if I wrote the article. Wow. And I remember going to some editors years ago reporting that and being a little kind of shell-shocked by that. <laughs> I remember Steve Brill at the American Lawyer saying, Oh, they never, th if they're really going to commit suicide, they never threaten, so we're going to run it. <laughs> but I hasten to say, no one ever did. So do you think, um, do you think that your decision would have been different um, if he had, say, been murdered as opposed to killed himself? Was the suicide relevant to the decision, um, do you think? I, yeah, I think it was relevant. I, I mean, it wasn't the first thing I thought about, but... Or even just got hit by a bus. If he'd been hit no, by a car or yeah. something, I... I think I might have thought a little bit differently about it. I'll tell you what my main thinking was, but but at least on that suicide angle, the fact that it was his choice, I think did have some effect on my thinking. Did the fact that he was a convicted felon have a no. so if that hadn't if it was just so it, just the suicide was the thing that and and the, the fact death. that it was newsworthy. Yes, it was the suicide and the death. I, I mean, the main thing that occurred to me, and again, this kind of goes back to a lot of the analysis that goes on in contract law, but what was his intent in asking for confidentiality? Who was he trying to protect? Uh, it certainly wasn't Musk. Mm -hmm. his, it was himself. His motive was if it got out that he was doing this kind of work for a prominent person and that he was talking to a reporter, nobody would engage him to do the kind of thing again. It was to protect himself. Right. I mean, frankly, he threw a lot of people under the bus in that interview. He talked about their sex activities, their drug use. I didn't put any of that in there. I don't even know if it's true. Mm -hmm. But he was dropping names left and right, I think in a way mostly to con show me how plugged in he was. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, that weighed quite heavily in my decision that his primary goal was to protect only himself and his ability to rehabilitate himself in this world of influence, and that clearly was now gone. He had no further, in I mean, he's dead. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the stuff he said, my many years of experience, people may tell you something on background, but they want it out. If they, if they really don't want anyone to know, they don't tell you. Yeah. No, I mean, it, was, it seemed to me that it was part of his whole mission to, to position himself as a player. Yeah, um, I think what, he wanted, and I think he embellished his role in all of this in order to make me think that he was more important than he actually is. Yeah. Why he cared, I don't know, but I'm, you know, I'm a media person. I guess that's that counted for something. You know, again, the other part of it was weighing his interests against the public interest and how significant was this. And I thought that weighed quite heavily that that this did give, I mean, to me, that some of the most important points are that he was utterly unapologetic about his behavior. Mm -hmm. um, he, he did not show a trace of remorse. There was no contrition whatsoever. And even having a young woman at the door is kind of like putting it in your face. Mm -hmm. he's, he's defiant. And I thought that was a very important quality to convey. Again, also to say that, you know, he's sort of charming and charismatic. I think that 
helps a little bit to explain his ability to draw these important people into his orbit. I, again, whether they experience that same thing, I don't know. But like many, I don't know, they call him a con man. I, I do think he portrayed himself as something he was not. But like many people like that, he's skillful. Mm-hmm. Before we started taping this, you just you talked about how you there was a there's been a lot of interest in this piece that you wrote, and there's been a lot of commentary on Twitter. I don't know how much how closely you follow that, but have you been surprised by the response, or or in, in terms of the decision to run to run the the comments, um, or has it sort of do you think it's been reinforcing the volume of it? Maybe surprises me a little bit, but the nature of the comments is no surprise. Of course, people aren't going to come directly to me and say, "Oh, you made a terrible decision." But ninety nine percent, I've gotten a ton of emails and mm-hmm. reaction. It, it's been extremely supportive and saying, "Thank you so much for mm-hmm. doing that." It really gave me insights I didn't have before. I feel good about that. Personally, I felt good about kind of getting it out there. Mm-hmm. You know, not having to walk around with it. But I expected there would be criticism both from people who said, oh, you, you know, you, you didn't have the right to unilaterally decide to run that, or the Times didn't. And also people who said, well, you should have been, you should have been immediately exposing him you know, within days. That, like, I should have immediately violated it because he was engaged in some kind of crime. And that, that strikes me as totally off base. I, first of all, he'd already pleaded guilty and, ser- and served his time. I didn't think the woman was underage. And I assume, maybe naively, that once you're on probation or whatever he was, you're going to be very careful to obey the law and not do anything. Yeah, yeah. I start. I talked at the outset about this sort of flurry of speculation about his death and his suicide, and whether you think that lines have been crossed as you've seen this sort of like this sort of case building for why he was actually murdered and not commit suicide. The case building for who might have had a motive to do that. And this again, like this, is not from sort of fringe media people. Um, um, and Margaret Sullivan for the Washington Post wrote a piece about how everybody needs to sort of calm down about all this. But do you have any thoughts about the the sort of flurry of speculation that's followed all of this and what we can learn from it and perhaps do differently? Uh, I'm not surprised by it. Um, I, I said the minute he died, there's going to be a mass of conspiracy theories here, which is, of course, one of the reasons why the Justice Department and the Bureau of Prisons should have been hyper vigilant to make sure this didn't happen. I mean, frankly, I was flabbergasted that he was able to kill himself after he'd already tried it once. Somebody actually said to me, oh, I bet he's going to kill himself. And I said, oh, no way. I said, you know, he is going to be under 24-hour, you know, surveillance, that he won't have any bed sheets. He's not going to have a belt. That is not going to happen. And so I was flabbergasted that they let that happen. Turns out the guys were asleep. Well, apparently they were asleep. But then how did he get taken off suicide? Well, there's still plenty of unanswered questions. So so on this realm of speculation, do you think what? What do I think happened? Yeah. Well, look, I'm a fact person. I'm always telling myself, don't leap to conclusions until you know. Even the obvious also turns out not to be the case. I'm not saying it is a conspiracy. I'm not saying it isn't. But as long as the government doesn't provide answers, and Mm -hmm. they've been very slow about dribbling these details out, conspiracy theories are going to go crazy. And the longer it takes, if there's like a non-conspiratorial explanation, get it out there. I I mean, I, I feel the government should understand as well as we do what the costs of concealing anything are going to be 
And I realize they have to be, they have to be thorough and that sort of thing. But they ought to be, they ought to really be getting this information out there as quickly as possible to, to refute this. A lot of things went wrong for this to happen. So when that many dominoes had to fall, I certainly understand why even sober-minded people are saying, you know, what happened, and is it possible? that somebody was paid off or it, there was an arrangement. I don't, I don't think that's like, you know, saying you've seen a UFO or something the, the night before. Are you still on the story? Oh, definitely. What about Musk? No, not day to day. I mean, again, I, I'm a business columnist, so any, a Tesla is a fascinating company yeah. and Musk is a fascinating character. And I'm on the record saying I love the cars. And I, hope they, <laughs> I hope they succeed. Um, you mentioned your book. What's that about? Uh, it's uh, it's called Deep State, Trump, the FBI, and the Rule of Law. A lot of conspiracy theories in there, too. At a shorthand way, I say it's where Mueller feared to go. What's the pub date? October 8th. Great. Jim Stewart, thank you so much for coming in. Sure. It's a great conversation. Good. Read up on everything else uh, related to journalism on CGR.org, and we'll see you next week. 